Well, good morning. <laughs> Always so great to be with you. I am Reverend Nicole Riley, and I am a clergy coach and a church coach and a social media manager. Um, and I was your lead and teaching pastor. So it is great to be here. And we are going to continue our series. We're talking about the seven things we know to be true. And today we're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about how the Bible has a message for us today. So what is the message of the Bible? Well, the Bible is one continuous story that points toward Jesus. It is a story that takes place in five acts, and each of those five acts has a location and a key scripture phrase that we're going to look at with it. Now, we're going to talk about the Bible's meaning, and I think the relevance of it is going to surprise you because sometimes we think of the Bible as a historical book, as a very old book, an ancient book, and we don't know what it says to us today. But I think you're going to be surprised at the relevance of what the Bible has to say to us. So the last time I taught this was at a confirmation class, and when I taught it at the confirmation class, I had 90 minutes to do it. Now, Sherry tells me I don't have 90 minutes, so <laughs> I will keep it to my 25 minutes. But what you need to know is there will be some things I don't go a lot in depth on, but all of those are in your sermon notes. So the sermon notes are quite extensive this week, um, and those get mailed out with the e-blast on Friday, and they're also in your app. So if you have the church app, you'll see them there as well. So are you ready? Did you have your coffee? Okay, let's go. So the Bible begins with Act 1. And Act 1 is about creation. We all know that the Bible begins with talking about the creation of all things. And God creates because God wants to be in relationship. God wants to be in relationship with all of creation, with humanity. But this connection early on is broken. And you might look to stories in the scripture like the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Cain and Abel. These are stories about God's connection to humanity that broke, that did not last. And this broken connection is what we call sin. Sin starts out in the scriptures as something that is uh, individual. You know, it's one person against another person, or one person against God, breaking what God calls us to do. So we all sin. We see it right at the beginning of the scriptures. And if you were to think about in our more recent history, um, who taught us about the, um, how, how prevalent sin is, you might look to someone like Billy Graham. Do you remember who Billy Graham is? He was an evangelist. And he really spent most of his ministry teaching about sin, original sin and sin between people and, and how you and I often do things to one another that break our relationship. So we lie and we cheat, we commit adultery, and in the worst cases, we murder. So this is where sin begins, this individual sin people against one another or people against God. But sin is more than 
just the sin between individuals. Sin becomes part of societies. And societies incorporate sin into how they behave, how they treat people. So sin becomes communal. Sin becomes societal, meaning it affects our structures. And if you were to look for who it is in our more recent history that taught us about how sin operates in this way, in societies and in cultures, you would hear from Martin Luther King Jr. He taught us about societal sin and the sin of racism. Sin has become part of our structures. It moves from individual sin to something that is bigger and more dangerous and more difficult to control. So let's hear our first text which will help us see how societal sin looks. This is Exodus 3, 7 through 10. Then the Lord said, I have heard the cry of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has come to me, and I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in our text, what we see is that sin has become part of the structure. One people, the Egyptians, are oppressing another people, the Israelites. They have put them into bondage, into slavery. So in Act 1, it takes place in Egypt. And Egypt is, of course, a historical place, but Egypt is also a symbol for us in the Bible of any time and place where people are oppressed, where people are enslaved, where people are marginalized. So the text's key phrase is when God says, I have heard the cry of my people who are in Egypt, I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering, and I've come down to deliver them. So this key phrase shows us how God hears, and God cares, and God delivers. So in our first act, we learn that the Bible teaches that God is with those in need, that God meets them in their suffering, that God hears them. And this is not just in history, but this is here and now. It has been for all time. So Act 2. Act 2, our location is Sinai. God has freed his people. He has brought them to a new place. And he has work for them to do. The text puts it this way. It says, Exodus 19. Then Moses went up to God, 
the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. So this last phrase is our key phrase. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. So in Act 2... God has said to his people, I have something for you to do and to be. I have freed you for a reason. Now, when we hear this phrase, priestly kingdom and holy nation, this is what God is calling them to do, what does that mean? Well, a priest in biblical culture would be the one who represents God to the people. So if you want to know what God is like, you would look toward his priest. But in this text, it's not saying a small group of men who were the Israelite priests. It's talking about a priestly kingdom so that all God's people are to be part of this priestly kingdom. They're to represent who God is to the world around them. So for us today, God's priests are all of us, all people who profess Christ. We are a priestly kingdom, and we are called to be a holy nation. So if people are God's representation of who God is, they're trying to represent who God is to the world, we look at people and say, are they loving? Are they kind? Are they generous? Because that is who God is. So the second act in the Bible awakens us to the fact that God is calling to his people to be his body here on earth, to be his hands and his feet, right? We've heard that. We heard it in some of the music we sang this morning. There's also this word holy here. We're called to be a holy nation, which means we're called to remove ourselves from the sin that is all around us, whether that's sin of individuals or sin that is more corporate and societal, we're to remove ourselves from that as people who follow God because we are called to remove ourselves from hate. We're called to remove ourselves from harm, both in our communities, in our families, and also as nations, acting as God would in relationships. So to be holy is to be like God. So, Act 1, God hears the suffering of his people and he rescues them. Act 2, God gives his people responsibility to represent him in the world and he calls us to be holy. Now, here we go to Act 3 and this is where things go a little off track. We find ourselves in Jerusalem and this is the time of King Solomon. Now, you may know a little bit about King Solomon. He's, he's often spoken of as someone who was very wise. He was certainly someone who was very rich. And if you read 1 Kings chapter 10, and all that's in the sermon notes, 
he is visited by the Queen of Sheba. Now, when I was growing up, if I behaved any way that was uppity to my father, he would always say to me, who do you think you are, the Queen of Sheba? So, the Queen of Sheba was a foreign queen. She comes to the kingdom of the Israelites. She meets with Solomon. And she basically says, you know, here you were, these people who were oppressed, and now you are leaders, you are, you are kings, you are people who are ruling the nation, and you are ruling with justice and righteousness. And this is key, because this is how people were called to live, right? If you were called to live in the way of God, that's a way of justice, the way of righteousness, which means right relationships with people. So that's what she thought was going on. But Queen Sheba did not know the whole story. Because the chapter right before she visits, Solomon, he's gathered people and pressed them into slavery. Many, many people, so that they would build the temple and the royal palace and the walls of Jerusalem and many towns. So he has pushed a whole group of people into slavery. And then the chapter after Queen Sheba leaves, we hear how Solomon has turned his heart from God. And then he has become someone who worships false gods, gods that were so terrible that they required child sacrifice. So they have forgotten who they are. Solomon and the people have strayed far from being a people who God had called and created them to be. They have forgotten who they were. They have become oppressors. And Solomon, for all his wisdom, is not hearing the cry of those who are oppressed. And he has built his life on wealth and power, and that has been built on the backs of others. So... His kingdom is not a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. It has become one of comfort and of indifference. So, Act 1, God hears the cry of his people and he saves them. Act 2, God calls his people to be a holy nation. Act 3, God's people enslave others and turn from the worship of him. Act four, I wish I could tell you it gets better at this point, <laughs> but it actually goes from really bad to even worse. So this is the season where we hear from a lot of the prophets in the Bible, and they're speaking to the people, and they're calling them back to the way of God. They're calling them back to be a kingdom that is priestly and a nation that is holy. The people are not interested in that. They want their comfort. They want their luxury. They turn their backs on those who are in need and those who are suffering. This is what the prophet Amos writes. He says, how terrible it will be for you who sprawl on ivory beds surrounded with luxury 
eating the meat of tender lambs and choice calves. You sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and you fancy yourselves to be great musicians, as King David was. You drink wine by the bowlful, and you perfume yourselves with exotic fragrances, caring nothing at all that your nation is going to ruin. Therefore, you will be the first to be led away as captives. Suddenly, all your revelry will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his own name, and this is what he, the Lord God Almighty, says, I despise the pride and false glory of Israel, and I hate their beautiful homes. So out of their disobedience, out of their turning away from how they were called to live, eventually they are captured and they are taken to Babylon. So our key phrase is, I despise the pride and false glory of Israel. I hate their beautiful houses, and they are in Babylon. Now, this is a season in the scripture where there's lots of laments. In fact, the Psalm 137, which you may be familiar with, if not, you should look it up because it's a psalm that is lamenting leaving their homeland and the difficulty and the pain they feel in the midst of that. So they have moved from being oppressed to being oppressors. And now, once more, they find themselves being oppressed. They have lost their way, and they are taken as slaves to Babylon. So, Act 1, God hears their cry and saves them. Act 2, God calls them to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Act 3, God's people enslave others and turn from the worship of him. Act 4, they have focused so much on their own luxury that they have turned from caring for those in need and they are captured and taken as slaves. Now between Act 4 and Act 5, there's 400 years of silence. That's how long it is between the Old Testament ending and the New Testament beginning. But then that silence is broken, and we get to Act 5. Now, this is where it gets good. Are you ready for some good news now? Right? Totally. I know. So in Act 5, Jesus is born. And he is born into a time and a place where his people are suffering the oppression of the Romans. He is a rabbi. He is a teacher. He speaks to his people who have known what it's like to be oppressed, what it's known what it's like to be in poverty and to be broken. His ministry begins God's kingdom in a brand new way, in a brand new, fresh way among the people. It is a new exodus. It is a fresh start. It is an opportunity to hear how God once more has loved the world and has come among us to give us the light and to save us from where we are and to call us to be who he had always called us to be. And this is now made real in Jesus. This is Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Soon 
he became well-known throughout the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll containing the messages of Isaiah the prophet were handed to him, and he enrolled the scroll to the place where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the downtrodden will be freed from their oppressors, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. Everyone in the synagogue stared at him intently, and then he said, this scripture has come true today before your very eyes. So our location is Galilee, and our key phrase is the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news. Jesus now ushers in a new way for all people. God reclaims us and makes us new, healing the divide between humanity and himself so that we can be in community, in relationship for all time. So act one, God hears the cry and saves them. Act two, God calls his people to be a holy nation. Act three, God's people enslave others and turn from the worship of God. Act four, they focus on their own luxury. They turn from the poor and are captured and taken to Babylon. Act five, Jesus arrives. And God comes among his people in Jesus. And once more, he has heard our cry. Once more, he calls us to be his people. And he shows us what it means to be his people by showing us the way of Jesus and the way Jesus lived. This way is called the kingdom of God. And Jesus invites us into this way through his life and his death and his resurrection. The Bible isn't just a book of history showing us how other people got off track. The Bible is, in fact, a book that shows us human nature. It shows us our story and how it is that generation after generation focus on their own comfort, their own luxury, and they forget those in need, and that we sin against one another, both as individuals and corporately in our society. But the good news is that does not have to be that way. It does not have to be that way because of Jesus's work among us. So let me summarize it all. If God's story is one of liberating the oppressed, saving the poor, and healing brokenness, if God calls us to be a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation, are we living up to what we have been called to do and be? Have we been healed 
of whatever it is that holds you and I in whatever slavery we may find ourselves. Have we organized our resources to care for people who are in need? Or are we part of a kingdom of selfishness and indifference? The Bible calls us to look at our own lives and to see how we organize our days. And do we organize our days to live out the way of Jesus, to prioritize how he has called us to live? The Bible should make us uncomfortable, should make us unsettled, should make us uneasy. And if it doesn't, we have not been reading it enough. So does the message, is there a message in the Bible for us today? You bet there is. Let us pray.